Today we continue our series on the life of Elijah, and we are in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's printed there in the uh, worship guide. We'll be looking at verses uh, 15 through 21. Hear God's word. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from sat following him, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Today we're going to meet a man who was ready and willing to follow God's call at all costs. And just by way of review, you'll remember there had been three and a half years of drought uh, in judgment upon the people following other idols under the lead of their king Ahab and his Phoenician wife named Jezebel. God had led Elijah away to the brook, the Kareth Ravine, and then to the home of a widow and her son in Zarephath, right near Jezebel's hometown. God had brought him back. He had confronted Ahab. Ahab had not repented. He blames Elijah for all the problems. There's the contest on Mount Carmel, and then there's heavy rain that comes, and God extends grace to Ahab. Ahab has the opportunity to, to repent, but they don't. He doesn't. His wife doesn't. In fact, her last words we have recorded there was what she said in response to what had happened on Carmel is, Elijah is dead. I'm going to see that he's killed. Elijah runs away, not so much out of fear of her, but in great disappointment. We saw last week that he essentially is depressed. He's very down because the repentance of the people has not happened to the degree that he expected and that he prayed and that he had hoped. God leads him to Mount Sinai, where God had given the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. God would meet with him there and he meets with Elijah and he basically says to Elijah tell me what you're thinking and Elijah said all all this generation basically has forsaken you as has the king and all these others I only I am the only one left and God corrects him beginning in the verses we just read and he he basically says now get out of yourself you don't know all that's happening. I want you to anoint these two kings. I want you to anoint your successor, Elisha. And, there, oh, by the way, there's still 7,000 people uh, who have not worshipped Baal. In other words, Elijah, you're not alone. You're one of many. 
So we, we pick up the story now where Elijah leaves Mount Sinai to carry out what God has told him to do. We need to see, though, that God calls every generation, he calls us now, to equip and ensure as best as possible that the next generation will be trained and equipped to follow the Lord. This is an important task. It's always to be thinking about the future, and that's what we see right here with Elisha. It was 150 miles from Sinai, where Elijah was, to the place where Elisha was. Assuming we walk at about four miles an hour, I guesstimate that it would take him a week or two to travel there to where Elisha is. And Dr. Ralph Davis, uh, in his commentary on, on Elijah, says that uh, Elisha was probably having what he thought was a typical day on the farm. No surprises. He was doing what you would normally do. He was plowing. He was working. Who would have guessed that on this day the prophet of God, Elijah, would come and throw his mantle on him? He never saw it coming. But we see that God works that way in the Bible, that often when people are doing mundane things is when the call of God comes. Moses was uh, shepherding sheep when, when God appears to him and tells him he's to go back to Egypt to lead his people out. Matthew was a tax collector sitting, doing what he normally did, sitting in a tax booth when God, when Jesus says to him, follow me. So the call of God may look sudden, but it's not sudden. It's very planned in God's mind. God had been deciding all of this before Elisha ever knew. So his call is unique, but there are lessons here. And his call displays for us a general attitude that we ought to have, and namely that we are open to God's will and that as his servants we're ready to do God's will. There's a leadership principle called convergence. And the idea is that here is an individual, in this case Elisha, and God has been preparing Elisha for years through his family, through his experiences, through his talents and abilities and the things he's learned and all these, his life experiences. He's been preparing him and then here's the situation. God's people have have worshipped idols, or a large majority of them have. There's an evil king and his wife, the queen, on the throne. Elijah has been his messenger. And now these things are going to converge. And convergence is when a person's preparation and the situation both match up. But God is at work at both, and that's what he was doing. Even though Elisha, meeting with Elijah is very sudden, God had been at work all along preparing for this. And so the question is, for our, us, is am I willing? A am I willing to follow wherever God will lead? We should live with that attitude all the time. So Elisha's response that we see in verses 20 and 21 shows us that he has a clear understanding of what is involved. He sacrifices the oxen and he gives the meat to the people. And then he uses, also what he does, he uses the yoke his tools to fuel the fire that cook and burn up the oxen. Why does he do that? Why does he not just release them or say, I'm going to take these back to the, uh, to the farm to stay? I think there's something symbolic. He knows 
that God is calling him away from this. He is saying goodbye to this. He will never be returning in plow fields. So in a very real sense, it's like Cortez when he landed at Veracruz with 700 men and what they do, they, he set fire to their 11 ships showing that there's no, there's no return. We're going to the interior of Mexico. We're not going back to Spain. So Elisha burns these things up, gives the meat to feed the people, and then he says in verse 20, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Now, our first reaction may be, isn't that what Jesus warned about? When in Luke 9, he invited people to become his disciples. And then he, he said, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Sound familiar? But Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. But what Jesus is describing in Luke chapter 9 is not the same as with Elisha. Jesus was describing a person who says, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. But the whole time they've got their hand to the plow, they're looking back, wanting to return. It's a divided heart. With Elisha, he's saying, I want to go and say goodbye to my father and mother because he knows this is it. I am leaving and I, God has called me completely. So his returning to kiss his father and mother goodbye was an indication of a wholehearted commitment not what Jesus was describing that was an indication of a divided commitment so Elisha's commitment was wholehearted think of the cost that would have been involved in this there was a cost in the area of affections he knew that following Elijah would change his life forever we had an infant baptism last Sunday uh, outside and for the, I, I've lost count of how many times I've heard it or affirmed these myself, the baptismal vows. But the third question begins with, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? And so forth and so on. Unreservedly dedicate your child to God. Do we understand what we are saying then? We are committing as parents. We basically are saying, this child belongs to God. My son or daughter belongs to God and that I am to su support him or her in the calling that God has on their life. Well, that may be easy if it fits your plan, but what about if it doesn't? For example, I, years ago as a campus minister, had the task one day to go to the airport and to pick up a missionary who had come to that particular campus to speak to our group with the hopes of recruiting people to come to Japan to serve short-term or long-term as missionaries. While we were riding in the car, we, we talked, the two of us, and I was asking about his family, and he, he told me they, they live in Japan, and, and his father and his siblings live a variety of other places, but his dad and his mom lived in Colorado, I believe. And he said how his father, uh, on occasion, either monthly, would send out an email to all of his siblings and himself and how they stayed in touch and the support they had from the parents. Because my question was, how do they handle you being, as he told me, 16 hours by jet away? Uh, but there was nothing but support. Uh, and the, the security that I could tell he had in that. 
the best missionary biography I have ever read, and I recommend it without hesitation, is that of John G. Patton. He was a missionary born about 200 years ago in Scotland. And he, as a, in his older teens, young adult, he, he had a heart for the South Pacific Islands, the people that lived there, that had not been reached with the gospel. And he heard at his minister's meeting about this. At the time when he heard about the need in the South Pacific, he was leading a ministry that by all accounts was very successful. It was an inner city ministry. It was a ministry to the poor that had, he grew it to about six or 700, which was just, it, it was exceptional in that place and at that time. So when he began to pray about and talk to other Presbyterian ministers about going to what was called the New Hebrides, which is today called Vanuatu, it's about halfway between Hawaii and Australia, then all he got was resistance. And the resistance was, God has obviously gifted you for this work right here. Look at the fruit. It would be criminal to walk away from it. There are plenty of other people that will go there, but few people can do this. He, he, nothing but resistance. He said no one encouraged him. Uh, but he said, no, there won't be others go there. And one of the reasons was, just about 20 years before this, the first two Protestant or any missionaries to go to Vanuatu had come from England. They were dropped off on the beach and without, within sight of the people on the ship were killed, cooked, and eaten by the people of Vanuatu. And so he is saying, I mean, nobody wanted to go there. Then he gets a letter from his parents. And I'm going to paraphrase, I paraphrased it, but it's, it's my words with their basic idea, which would be very hard without the Scottish brogue for me to communicate to you. They said, until now, we were afraid to influence your decision. But now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you've been led. Your father greatly desired to be a minister, but other responsibilities forced him to give up that idea. When you were born to us, we laid you upon the altar, our firstborn, to be consecrated if God saw fit as a missionary of the cross. And it has been our constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering and long spare you and give you many souls from the unreached world for your labors and here's what john Patton wrote from that moment every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished i saw the hand of god very visibly not only preparing me for but now leading me to the foreign mission field parents grandparents parents in the future, parents-to-be, do you encourage your sons and daughters to serve the Lord regardless of the cost? That should be our posture. That's what we say in those baptismal vows. We unreservedly dedicate our children to God. So Elisha was giving up family affection when he went back to tell his father and mother goodbye. Think of the cost in the area of security. The very fact that his dad owned these, all these oxen, 12 pairs, 24 oxen right there, 
that tells us, it suggests at least, in that culture at that time, that he was from a fairly well-to-do family. Not rich, but we would have called him upper middle class. Not necessarily the richest family in town, but there would have been a certain degree of creature comforts that went with that. And that can be very difficult to part with. It can be very difficult. Not necessarily that we love money, but money gives the illusion of security. And it is an illusion. And Elijah was saying goodbye to that. He's also turning away from the familiar. We like the familiar, don't we? I know you do. You're sitting in your seats where you were eight months ago. I can't believe it. I'm standing in the same place. We all do the same thing. Even outside, at the outside service, people now have their places. They have their shade tree. And it's, it's comfortable when it's familiar. We know where to drive. I know where to park. I know I've got my network of doctors or businesses and and uh, all that, and it just it gets comfortable. The routine gets comfortable, and it's reassuring. And Elijah, in calling him, uh, is calling him to walk away from the familiar. Years ago, I had a mission to the world uh, leader tell me that, that the missionaries they send out, especially if they've never really gone cross-cultural, regardless of where they go, it's very predictable that at around the one-month mark, the first person falls apart emotionally. And they are prepared, and mission to the world is, that's our denomination's mission agency, to help the person with counseling and so forth. And here's what he says happens. He says, we, all of us, have props in our life, and they're subtle, and we are very acclimated to living in America and in our, our comfort zones, and when you're thrown to another culture, even though God's called you there and you are enthusiastic, when you're dealing with a language barrier and culture barriers and you don't know people, he said at about the one-month mark, it, your, the props have been knocked out from under you. He said everybody goes through it. Well, Elisha was signing on to go through that. So you have to think, why would he do it? Why would Elisha make this decision? Well, he knew it mattered. And he knew it was God's will for him to do this. The same reason we follow today. So he, he has this farewell dinner, you might say. He gives the food away. And then it tells us in verse 21, he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Well, what did God call him to at that point? Did he immediately go and stand before a king like Ahab and give him the message of the Lord? Did he have a contest with the prophets of Asherah or Baal or anyone like that? Did he raise a widow's son who had died? No, nothing like that. We're told in another passage, we're given an insight as to what Elisha did for Elijah. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 3 that they referred to him as Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. He helped Elijah wash his hands. So his call initially was to mundane servitude. There's no preaching, there's no proclamation, there's no signs and wonders, none of that. He basically was just assisting Elijah with mundane tasks. Not very outstanding piece of ministry, is it? Can, I mean, can you imagine forsaking all, family, everything, the farm, for this? But what do we find here? We find the biblical principle that Jesus taught 
that the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And that those who are faithful in small tasks within the body of Christ are the ones that the Lord will reward with greater opportunities for ministry. I, I mentioned before that when World War I erupted in France, that here in America, teaching at Princeton Seminary was J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was 34 years old at that time. It was 1917. He was not married. He had uh, achieved notoriety at the most pre prestigious seminary, Princeton, not only in America, but really around the world. And so there he was as a professor teaching, and yet he had a heart to go to France to help people, particularly to help the troops. So he volunteered to serve in a ministry, which at that time was very different than it is now, but it was a very aggressive, evangelical, evangelistic discipleship ministry, the YMCA. So he went to serve with the YMCA in France. He went to a small town. They placed him in a small town that had been decimated by German artillery. And there was a house that was rat infested and it was damp and the roof had been blown off. And he decided, well, this is where I'll sleep and I will set up a canteen, a small cafe. If you don't know what a canteen was, some younger, it's, a, it's, it's like a cafe, but there's no staff and he would serve hot chocolate. When he started, he found out that there weren't many worship services because he thought he'd be preaching. There weren't many worship services and what few there were, were only attended by a handful of people and he quickly saw that his, his uh, theologically doctrinal sermons were not going to work. So he shelved those and just taught very basic Bible stories. But he decided he wanted to help the people, so he opened the canteen and he would serve hot chocolate. Now, hot chocolate in 1917 is not the same as today. You did not get your carnation instant thing and heat up the water and then pour it in, and within a couple of minutes you have hot chocolate. No, it's a far different process. It took two hours to prepare. You started with a slab of chocolate. You had to, to shave that into small pieces. You had to mix it just right. You had to prepare it. So to begin serving at 7.30 in the morning, he had to begin preparation at 5.30 in the morning in this wet house. And if he needed supplies, five-mile walk to the nearest village where he could get it. So what does God do later? J. Gresham Machen is used back here in America to uh, begin the denomination Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He begins... Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He leaves this legacy from a theological standpoint in books and, and, and so forth and his leadership. Few people know, though, about this diversion during World War I of his own choice where God took this, this uh, brilliant man and put him serving hot chocolate to soldiers and villagers there in this small French town. And yet that's God's principle. That's the way he operates. So in closing, God calls Elisha, and the text tells us he rose up and went after Elijah and served him. Pretty mundane stuff. But that was God's call. And I want you to remember that because some of you perhaps right now, at the present or in the near future, you're going to be in the most mundane 
unrecognized, anonymous, behind-the-scenes service that you feel don't in any way use your strengths and your abilities and you're not serving God with the full potential you think you have. And yet, God's given you the assurance he's got you there. Maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for a lifetime. So carry on and serve God with joy. And I'll leave you with one verse that came to mind when I went to Eastern Europe, when this church sent me there to see a lot of our missionaries in Romania and Poland and the Ukraine some years ago. I was struck by the number of American widows that were serving in ministries there. And it wasn't easy. And in some cases, they were very lonely, but they had amazing ministries, especially with the younger women in the Ukraine. And they had come. They had seen, this is my opportunity to serve the Lord. And I kind of scratched my head at that. And there was one verse I read when I came back home that clarified it for me. It's in Mark chapter 10. Peter, it says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You know the Lord has you there, so carry on with joy. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know our days. They are laid out before you, and we only see a part of what's around us. And we would pray that even the example of Elisha might help us to live for what's eternal, to live for what will matter 10,000 years from now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.